Matthew, Mark, and Luke are oftentimes called the synoptic gospels. And what that means is they include many of the same stories, even using the same wording and often in similar sequence. In fact, the word synoptic literally means together sight. But this is compared with John's writings, who uh, by way of content really is comparatively different. Well, since some, none of the synoptic records are exhaustive, we need to look to Matthew and Mark's account together to get the full picture. Hendrickson wrote this. He said, the gospel writers were not just mere copyists, but independent authors who each utilized their own methods. And in this case, what we have, we have Mark that wrote in a chronological order. Matthew wrote in a topical order. For example, the event that's before us today, Mark describes as beginning at 6 a.m. on Monday, and the application of all of that and the sermon the Lord preaches is on Tuesday. In other words, he dealt with the chronological sequence of things that happened. In Mark's account, between the actual cursing of the fig tree and the lesson that he taught on Tuesday, in between was the cleansing of the temple. Now... Matthew just begins with a sequence of topics. And since the next thing is the at 6 a.m. on Monday, he teaches this fig tree in one uninterrupted account. So going back just a little bit, though. Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And when he was finished, it was getting later in the day, and he made a sweeping survey of the temple. He leaves the city in the company of the twelve, and he spends the night in Bethany. Now, in the morning, it says, he was hungry. Now, i got to tell you, I can't tell you the number of explanations that I read by various scholars trying to explain why Jesus was hungry. In other words, some pointed this out. If he went to Bethany, no doubt he went to the house of Lazarus, his dear friend, the one that he previously rose from the dead. And guess who else lived there in the house of Lazarus? His sisters, Mary and Martha. And one scholar said, well, if he went to Bethany, if he went to Lazarus' house, Mary and Martha no doubt were there too. Martha being the great server that she was, didn't somebody get up and make him breakfast? Did he get up extra early that day and just leave early? Well, consider this. First of all, first of all, Broadus says that it was very common that the first meal of the day was in the middle of forenoon or the middle of morning. So it would not be uncommon for a man to be hungry at 6 a.m. and still have not eaten. Let me take it further. J.W. McGarvey said this trying to explain about why the Lord perhaps had not eaten or was hungry. He said the closing days of our Lord were so full of activity, he doesn't have time to tarry in Bethany to eat. Still others said this, and this is entirely possible too, by the way, because there were times when the Lord avoided or evaded someone coming to attack him because it was not his time. Not because he was afraid, not because he didn't want to die for the sins of the world and fulfill what his father had sent him to do, but because he knew it wasn't time. Some scholars said because he knew it wasn't time, he never went to Lazarus' house that night in Bethany. He said, one scholar said, no doubt he spent the night on the quiet slopes of the Mount of Olives and laid low because his time had not yet come. 
Well, the simple fact is, folks, you know what? It doesn't matter. And we don't know. All we do know, all we do know is we know that the Lord was hungry. And we see the human side of Jesus. I might just say this is a beautiful picture of what the Bible describes of Jesus himself. No doubt he's the son of God, and you know this. He's the son of God because he is fully divine. So our Messiah was fully divine, son of God. Guess what else he was? This is a perfect picture of things I have preached to you over the years. He was hungry, showing that he is the son of man, meaning that he is fully human. Our Messiah was fully divine, son of God. He was fully human, son of man. And on this occasion, we get just a little glimpse into his humanity. He's hungry. Now, all of a sudden, in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 19, it says that seeing a fig tree by the road. Interesting about that. This was a fig tree that was standing there, no doubt, all by itself. Very common in Palestine. And from what I have read, very important in Palestine. Some of these trees provided good shade for the harsh Mediterranean sun. And I have read that some of these fig trees actually reached 20 feet in the air. There was a time when a man was under the, under the shade of a fig tree one time. In John's Gospel, it records, I believe it's John 1 and 49, I think. It was a man by the name of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was underneath a tree, a fig tree, one of these great big fig trees. It was providing shade for him. Do you remember what happened? The Lord passes by and the Lord calls him to discipleship. What was the man doing, though? He was under one of these great big trees. Now, in addition to this about fig trees... Figs were nutritious and very inexpensive and a wonderful source of food. In fact, in fact, before Israel entered the promised land, God promised them the land would abound in honey, in wheat, in barley, in vines, in pomegranates, and in figs. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 8. So, so, the fig tree is somewhat of a symbol of the blessing and prosperity of the nation of Israel. A symbol of prosperity. Now notice what happens. And this is when it starts getting fun. They come by this fig tree by the road. And it says he came to it, but he found nothing but leaves. What did he mean by that? In other words, Mark's account says, you know what he did? He went over, he saw the leaves, and what did he do? Great picture here. Get this in your mind. He saw the leaves and the Lord goes over to the tree because of the leaves and he inspects it for fruit. He was drawn to it by the outer sign of having figs. He sees the leaves and he goes and inspects it for, for fruit. But then there's more. Mark's account says this too. But he finds none. Because it was not the season for figs. First of all, may I say, there is not the slightest evidence here that Jesus has lost his temper or he was moved by selfish emotions and he cursed the tree. I can't believe how many people I have or how many accounts I have read that have actually taken the spin that the Lord lost control because he was hungry. That's not our Lord. 
You don't think that you think that you don't think that our Lord could maintain self-control regarding a fig tree when he was hungry, when he did all the things that he did for the sins of the world. When Jesus for 33 years lived in this life, was in all points tempted like as we are, had the self-control yet without sin, but he couldn't contain himself on this occasion. Make no mistake about it. This was not the hungry fit of our Lord by cursing this tree. He comes to it. He sees the leaves. When he does, he inspects it. Mark's account says, but it had, it was not the season for figs. One scholar said this too, said this. It, did, it wasn't the season for figs. Therefore, when the Lord got there and saw there were no figs, it was because that's exactly what should have happened. If it wasn't the season for figs, it wasn't going to have any figs. Please get this, though. It wasn't that he was just hungry, sees the fig tree, inspects it for fruit, finds none, gets mad, curses it. And by the way... When Jesus cursed the fig tree and when it withered away, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. Now, no miracle ever performed in the Bible was for personal or private benefit, not one. If Jesus cursed the fig tree, thus performing a miracle and it withers away, that would be the only case in all of the Bible where a miracle was performed for personal benefit. It was never done that way. And that's not what happened here either. Let's go further. Let's go further. It's time for the Lord to teach a lesson. It's time for the Lord to preach a sermon. Many times we reflect on the teaching of Jesus, and, and I've even said this in, over the last 20 years of trying to preach. Oftentimes we sit there and we that speak publicly, sometimes we really labor over what we're going to talk on, what we're going to speak about. And I have made the statement that the Lord just went from place to place and he saw something, he saw the need and he preached the perfect sermon for the occasion. That's exactly what he's doing here. He goes to the fig tree, sees the leaves, has no fruit, understands it was not the season for fruit, but it's time to preach a sermon. And the sermon is a threefold lesson. Here it is. It was time to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. That's number one. It was a lesson that's to teach that it's utter futility to have a profession of faith without works. Also, the lesson is that it reveals the mighty possibilities of faith. This is the threefold lesson that the Lord is going to teach. But let's go back to the phrase, the, it was not the season for figs. Now, I read some critics, and some critics said, you know, Jesus really acted irrationally. If it wasn't the season for figs, why did he have to curse the tree? But you know, all you got to do is study fig trees and fruit back then, and you can know exactly that if you took, take that interpretation, you know exactly that that's a wrong or a false interpretation. What do we mean when it says it was not the season for figs. Well, first of all, in Palestine, in Palestine, on many fig trees, fruit appears before the leaves. Now, when we got trees with fruit, we get the leaves first, and then comes the fruit, right? Did you know that in Palestine, some fig trees, the fruit came before the leaves? Now, it's very important. 
Now, in fact, there's only two harvest times for figs in the area around Jerusalem. The first was for the early figs. And incidentally, these were figs that appeared on the tree at the end of March. They came from sprouts or shoots from the previous year. They were called the early figs. Now, since the Passover was in April, we'll get to that in a minute though, was in April, we're talking about the early figs here. Now, the other time for harvest of figs were the late figs, and the late figs ripened in the late summer and were gathered from August to October. All right, so what are we talking about? These came from new shoots or new sprouts, the ones that came late. The ones that came early were fruit that was produced in March from the shoots from the previous year. Now, we're talking about what time of year now? We're talking about around the month of April. That means that what the gospel writers are referring to in the accounts that are before us, they're talking about the early fruit or the early figs. Now, I got to tell you, I didn't know anything about figs at all. I didn't know anything about figs or trees from those areas before I read and studied this subject. But it's amazing, though, because the fact that the fruit comes first. The fruit comes first. You're about the month of April now. Jesus is about to be crucified in just a few short days. And he comes to a tree, and it's got leaves. In fact, it's in full leaf. It's in full leaf. Jesus inspects the tree and it has no fruit. So as the result, the Bible says Jesus cursed the tree. So this was not a hungry fit by our Lord that just got mad at the tree because he was hungry and there was no fruit. This was a just compensation for misrepresentation. That's exactly what that was. J.W. McGarvey wrote this. Let me read it to you. Listen. Though it was too early for fruit, it was also too early for leaves. The tree evidently had an unusually favorable position. It seemed to vaunt itself by being in advance of the other trees and to challenge the wayfarer to come and refresh himself. So, he curses the tree because it was barren. But don't you see the point? It's time for the Lord to teach a lesson. What is he possibly talking about? He's talking about something that appears one way on the outside, but really, indeed and in fact, is another way. This is what the Lord's doing. He is preaching a sermon about hypocrisy. He is preaching a sermon about hypocrisy. And the fig tree represents the Jewish nation. Now, from a distance, Israel boasted of righteousness. Israel boasted of having fruit. Israel boasted of being the people of God. But on closer examination, it was a hypocritical scam. There was no edible fruit anywhere among them. Johnson said this just a few hours before. Those that were in Jerusalem had greeted the Messiah with unrestrained enthusiasm. I said this in the introduction. I said it last week. They, they came with the palm branches. They laid down the clothes that went, no doubt, from Mount Olivet all the way inside the city of Jerusalem. They were hailing the king. 
on the outside with unrestrained enthusiasm. And you know what's going to happen in just a few days? They're going to say, let him be crucified. They're going to say, his blood be on us and on our children. They're going to say, crucify him. Incidentally, do you remember when they brought Barabbas out, that highway man? A man, no doubt, that was like Jesus described with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember when they brought this, this creep out and he's standing next to Jesus? And one is going to be released and the statement was made, the question was made, which one shall I release unto you? And they all cried out, Barabbas, have you ever wondered this? Didn't anybody say Jesus? Wasn't there anybody? What about the mindset of the, of the disciples, of the apostles? The Bible says all forsook him and fled at some point. I just wonder if there was anyone there that cried out for Jesus. Anyone that said Hosanna to the highest on the previous Sunday. Was there anyone that cried out for Jesus? Jesus is painting a picture of the hypocrisy of the Jewish nation. And I got to say, I got to say. If you want to make a practical application for our life, I just wonder this. Are we one way on the outside, in front of and in the midst of people that we want to, them to know that we are Christians, like our brothers and sisters in Christ or our families? Are we one way on the outside with the leaves, full leaf, that we're a Christian, but inside have no desire at all to make those changes in your life? If that's the case, then we're just the same as what Jesus described with the barren fig tree that he curses. We're pretending to be something on the outside when on the inside we're not even thinking about making changes. A lesson on hypocrisy. Now, interesting about this, when Jesus curses the fig tree, the lesson is not obvious to the disciples. So if you go to Mark's account... Mark's account has the Lord explaining the symbolism in its application of Israel the next day on Tuesday. Now, in Mark's account, in Mark 11 and verse 14, Mark points out that this, all the disciples are listening to what he had said. And that prepares them for the sequel that begins in Mark 11 and verse 20. So now let's go in your mind, it's now Tuesday. Right? It's Tuesday. In the mindset, they were all listening. What did they hear Jesus say? Jesus curses the barren fig tree and says, you're never going to have fruit. Watch this. The next day, in the morning, as they pass by, they see the, dried, they see the tree dried up from its roots. Next. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. You know what Matthew's account says when you put it all together? It says the disciples marveled and were amazed. Now, why do you think they marveled? Fowler said this. Fowler wrote, he said, no doubt they were amazed because all the miracles of Jesus up until this point in time were miracles of mercy and compassion and, all, and so forth. But all of a sudden now, this is a different kind of a miracle. This is a miracle demonstrating punitive judgment, Fowler said. Maybe they were amazed by that. I think it's really simple, though. I think the question actually bears out what it means. I think the disciples were all amazed at how quick it died, how quick it withered up, and how quick that it died. 
So Peter says, what an amazing response the Lord's going to make in a minute. But Peter says, he's remembering as they're walking by, he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. In other words, I can't believe it has withered away so very soon. He wants the answer from Jesus. This is how the Lord responds. What an amazing response. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. What an incredible response. All Peter says is, can't believe this thing is withered so quickly. And Jesus says, have faith in God. That was his response. And Jesus obviously is addressing all the disciples and not just Peter. He doesn't give him, Peter, an answer, a direct answer for his remark. Peter was curious why it withered away. Jesus now is going to preach a sermon and he's going to talk about something that's extremely important. He's going to talk about having faith in God. Now, this word have, this word have, it's an interesting Greek verb. And it actually means, it's in, the, it's in the present tense. So it actually means this. When Jesus says this to Peter and all the disciples, he is saying, continually have faith in God. So this isn't a one-time thing. This is an ongoing, continuing thing. Says, continue to have faith in God. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that relies on God for everything. In particular, he's going to talk about the effectiveness of prayer, and really that's what he's referring to. It's faith that the disciples had so much trouble for, trouble over. How many times did the Lord have to tell his disciples, Oh, ye of little faith? Do you remember, and I'll just be very brief about this, but do you remember when they could not cast out the demon out of the boy? Remember that? Matthew 17, they couldn't cast out the demon. When Jesus finally comes and he does so, and he cast out the demon, and he goes away with his disciples, the disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your unbelief, and it doesn't say unbelief in the original, unbelief, it actually says little faith. In other words, they did not have enough faith to rely on God that they could do what the Lord promised them that they could do. They always had problems with that. They're still having problems with that. Jesus is teaching them a lesson on this. And then Jesus gave them a little lesson about a mustard seed. That their, their faith needed to grow to greatness. Now, because the fig tree here... Jesus possesses the kind of faith and prayer that causes this fig tree to be withered. And Jesus would point out this very simple thing. If they could simply have the same exact kind, the same exact kind of faith, they not only could do things like Jesus did with withering the fig tree immediately, but even the greater things of all, even greater things that would come, like removing mountains. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Incidentally, the Lord's lesson is twofold. It's teaching time for the Lord. In fact, the entire thing, the entire event becomes a teaching opportunity. And it is a teaching opportunity to talk about faith and humility. Now, you know when the Bible says, my thoughts, speaking of God, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth and so on and so forth. All Peter says is look at the tree. And Jesus knows the hearts of his disciples and preaches a sermon on faith and humility. 
He knows what they need. I can't know that. The Lord knew that. It's time for the Lord to preach a sermon. Now, Mark's account says in Mark chapter 11, in verse 23, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says, or whatever he asks. Now, no doubt the mountain that he's referring to perhaps is the Mount of Olives. And uh, the sea, I would think it would be, the, would be the Dead Sea, even though some scholars say it could have been the Mediterranean Sea. What the Lord is doing is he's speaking in hyperbole. That's an extreme exaggeration to prove a point. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you have the right kind of faith, what kind of faith? The kind of faith that grows like the mustard seed. The kind of faith in your heart that relies on God in everything. You will have the proper faith to be able to do what I'm telling, what you've just seen me do, and even remove mountains. And in hyperbole, he said, it's like you could take the Mount of Olives and throw it down 3,000 feet into the Dead Sea. By exaggeration. You know, Jesus often used exaggeration like that. When Jesus was making a point about a rich man getting into heaven, you remember what he said? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Incidentally, in those areas, they have what they call the eye of the needle where a camel would come in in the entrance. And some people would try to explain away what the Lord was talking about by saying, what he's talking about is talking about that camel coming into Jerusalem for real right through that entrance that they call the eye of the needle. That's not what he meant. He means the eye of a real needle. That's him speaking in hyperbole. Extreme exaggeration to prove his point. He's saying the same thing here. If you have the right kind of faith, you could, by hyperbole, remove mountains and even cast it into the Dead Sea. You know, the disciples were going to have tremendous obstacles come their way. And with all this encouragement and all the things that they were talking about, they needed to understand that they can move mountains of difficulty. And they understood that phrase, by the way. Removing mountains among the Jews meant a metaphorical statement to describe moving mountains of difficulty in your life. That's what that meant. And they knew that. All right. So this is great encouragement here. And sometimes people would take this great encouragement and apply it in a general sense. Well, if it's going to be applied in a general sense, J.W. McGarvey gives the following qualifications. In other words, if we're going to say in our life that if we have the proper faith that we can move mountains of difficulty that come our way, we have to apply the following clarifications that McGarvey gives. Here they are. Number one, we cannot expect to obtain that which is unlawful to desire. Number two, we cannot expect to obtain that which is unwise to seek. Number three, we cannot expect to obtain that which will selfishly run counter to the will of God. And here's number four. We must not expect God to perform miracles in our life because miracles have ceased. So if we're going to apply this in general, that's fine. Yes, if we have the right kind of faith, yes, we can move mountains of difficulty in our life. Yeah, that's true. But with these exceptions. 
if these conditions, these qualifications, all of these things do apply. McGarvey summarized the Lord's point by saying the disciples who Jesus addressed will soon enter into a task which would seem to them difficult as removing mountains. He went on further and he talked about the license and immorality of paganism. They had to fight against that. That might have seemed insurmountable. What about the bigotry and prejudice of Judaism? You know, we're studying in the book of Galatians. There are still Judaizing teachers coming in trying to bind aspects of the old law. And going back to when the church was established on the day of Pentecost, from that point forward, the disciples, the apostles, had what seemed to be perhaps insurmountable obstacles and objects. They needed this encouragement. It might have even been, been as difficult in their mind as moving mountains. They needed to be assured that the power of faith was superior to all the adverse forces. Now, let's read it again. We, they, could not, they could not expect to obtain that which is unlawful for, for them to desire. They, they could not expect to obtain that which was unwise to seek. They could not expect to obtain that which is selfish. Uh, run uh, counter to the will of God but it was in the age of miracles and they could expect a miracle and that's what it says in chapter 11 Mark 11 and 24 therefore whatever things you ask you know there's a, the implied condition here is whatever they would ask of God in faith the implied condition would be what is asked in harmony with the laws of the will of God and by the way, if you pray, you have to pray in accordance with the laws of the will of God. We can never expect God to change the laws of the will of God just to accommodate us. Secondly, here's the other implied condition of the statement, whatever things you ask. That every true prayer involves the submission of what is asked to the judgment of the Father. How many times have we said, if it be your will, or we put it in your hands? Our brother just prayed a minute ago. He said that we pray for those that rule over us, as I paraphrase, that rule over us, that they would never enact any laws that would keep us from worshiping you, our Heavenly Father. But what are we doing? We are praying to God, but we are putting it in his hands and his judgment and his will. In everything. Then it says this. I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them. You know, the word receive here in the original is in the past tense. Now get this. This is great. This is going to talk about how confident we are when we pray. Okay? Here's the lesson. You know what this says to them? He's telling them, whatever you ask, believe that you receive them. But this word receive in the original is in the past tense. So it's better rendered like this. Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you have already received them. That fits. That fits Paul's, John's writing too. The epistle of John. In other words, when you pray to God, you have such belief in answered prayer that you believe that God is automatically answering that prayer right now if it's according to his will. He is answering that prayer 
as you're praying it. So the main lesson here, the main lesson, obviously, is talking about having the right kind of faith. And I can't imagine living life without the right kind of faith. But there's more. Because the Lord now is going to talk about something else. And this is very brief and we'll wrap up our remarks. He's talking about the right kind of faith. Peter says, look at the tree. He says, believe in God. Have faith in God. Teaches him a little sermon. If you just had the right kind of faith, you not only could do what I did with that fig tree, but you could move mountains of difficulty too. Speaking in hyperbole, you could take the mountain and even throw it into the sea. Whatever you ask, you will receive with the conditions we've already stipulated, but there's more. It's also a lesson of humility. It's also a lesson of humility. In other words, Jesus is saying, while we're having this discussion about faith, we must also have a discussion about humility. And that brings us to verse 25. And whenever you stand praying. Now, in a Bible study, a private Bible study this last week, we were talking about the posture in prayer. Somebody asked a question about the posture in prayer. And sometimes we kneel down when we pray. Sometimes we stand. Do you know that there's no posture in the Bible described for praying? None, none at all. Customarily, we may kneel, and that's good, because you know what? Jesus made that example. Jesus one time knelt in the Gospel of Luke when he prayed. So we have evidence of that. Why did Jesus say stand, though? Why did he say stand? He said stand because it was customary for Jews at that time when they prayed, they stood. So he's just using that example. And he says, oh, and by the way, when you stand praying, because that's what they did, not that you have to stand up to pray. Okay? Now, he says, when you stand praying, not speaking about a particular posture, okay? But he says this, when you do that, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. May I say one final thing about posture. It's not the posture of the body, it's the posture of the mind or the heart. That's it. And you know, it's, I don't know why people sometimes in the religious world pray a flippant type prayer almost a words of disrespect. You're coming before the Father. And I'm going to tell you, whether you kneel down, stand up, lay down, whatever you do, you have to make your heart reverent and you have to submit your heart in a position or a posture. Your heart's the posture of reverence to God. Now, Jesus is going to add something here too. This is similar to the words in the Sermon on the Mount. His point is our prayers will not be effective even though we believe intensely. That's what he said. If you have the right kind of faith, you're going to get it, right? Now he's saying there's a condition. And even if you have all that faith, it doesn't matter. If you have a problem right here, you're not getting forgiven at all. That is amazing to me. I have to tell you, I got to tell you, I've wondered in my life, was there ever a time when I held a grudge and did not forgive someone, out of the hardness of my heart, have I ever done that? And then just put that on the back burner, gone on down the road, and asked God to forgive me that night of my sins. 
I'm going to tell you, Jesus said, while you're doing the standing and the praying, while you have all that faith that I just promised you're going to have, if you have that kind of faith, if you have anything against anyone and you don't forgive them, your Father will not forgive you. Now, let's go back to Peter's original statement. This is where I think the Lord is just so brilliant. Maybe this isn't obvious to you. It, was just, it just kind of jumped off at me, kind of obvious to me. Peter comes to the tree and he goes, oh, look, look at the tree, look at the tree. Kind of, hey, look, there's trees, they'll wither away. Maybe Peter in his mind was thinking, and this is what the Lord would have known. Maybe Peter in his mind was thinking, now wait a minute. All those that are going to be enemies of ours, all those that are going to be hypocritical enemies, we'll be able to curse them too. Just maybe. Maybe in Peter's mind he was thinking, uh, we'll be able to do that with people too. I don't know. I don't know. Just maybe the Lord felt like, wait a minute, Peter, i got to fix your heart. I have to straighten out your heart. Because while you have the faith and while you saw me curse the fig tree and when I said you're going to be able to even do that, let me fix your heart. In other words, the curses on other men will be executed by God just as the curse on the fig tree. Maybe he would have had a vindictive spirit. I don't know. But Jesus made that point. Effective prayer, folks, must be with a loving heart. A person who prays must be willing with anxious desire to forgive others. Now, Jesus is not saying that if you forgive others... If you forgive others, you are automatically forgiven of your stuff. It doesn't say that. It doesn't. It doesn't say automatic, just do this and then you get this. But rather the refusal to forgive others will stand in the way of you being forgiven. In verse 26, our final verse. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You know, we've studied about trespasses on Wednesday evening. And we did discuss the very fact that it was sins. He's talking about if your brother is overtaken in a trespass, in any trespass. We're talking about sin. You that are spiritual, which is just a faithful Christian, go help them, right? You know what's amazing, though, is this word trespass means more than just gigantic big sins. It does. It means more than someone that's overtaken in a big sin that Galatians is talking about, Galatians 6. It means more than that. This word is defined further. You know what it is also defined as? Trespasses means to actually fall alongside. It even means to make a false step. That means a little thing, a little bump in the road. Do you get the picture? If you won't forgive your brother or your sister then you're not even going to be forgiven the little false steps you make in your life. Not even that. What a powerful, powerful sermon. In closing, let me say, it's Monday morning, 6 a.m. They came to a tree. Has leaves. Jesus is the inspector. He's the fruit inspector. He goes to inspect the tree for fruit because it has leaves and Fruit comes first, so it should have fruit. Nope, not fruit. Nope. Curses it. The next day on Tuesday morning, they're walking by. Peter says, oh, look at the, there it is. Why is it withered so fast? And all the disciples are amazed. Jesus says, have faith in God. 
a continual faith in God that relies on God, teaches a lesson about prayer, says if you can have the right kind of faith, you can move mountains, you can take mountains and throw them into the Dead Sea. But while you're doing that, have a humble heart and a forgiving heart of others. Because if you don't forgive others, it doesn't matter all this faith and strong belief that you have. It doesn't matter. You're getting nothing from the Lord. And you won't be forgiven, even of your little false steps. I'm through. By the way, we're going to be on Tuesday for a long time. Well, for a, quite a while. There's more recorded on Tuesday. There's more recorded in the last week on Tuesday than any other day except for Friday. There's more on Tuesday. So there's a whole lot that Jesus does on Tuesday. Next, we're going to find the cleansing of the temple and also the day of questions or also known as the day of controversy. That's coming up next. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.